Okay, so I'm, so our our slide changing ability, uh, the, the computers don't like us. So I'm going to have Todd do the automatic. So I'll be saying Todd, Todd, Todd. <laughs> it's not like he's deaf. It's, he's going to be changing the slides for me. So the title of this talk is God as Creator and Sustainer. Okay, and so you can see the the idea here is that God. Uh, is upholding the universe in his hands is a very important concept, the most important thing we're going to talk about today. But it's, the other is the subtitle for this, go ahead, Todd, uh, could be Are You a Closet Deist? And hopefully we'll get to that. If you know what a deist is or um, you don't, we're going to talk about that in some detail. So we're going to, don't, we don't care about what I am, so go to the next slide. So last week, if you were here, we talked about how the church saw the universe as primarily worthy of study in order to get spiritual allegory out of it. You remember that, yes? Kind of like an Aesop's fables kind of a thing. We had stories from nature which would then get changed a little bit uh, with stories that just weren't exactly true. Uh, but you got a spiritual thing out of it. And I, I alluded that maybe they're sort of like parables. Don't get upset about them. But uh, and I read, remember I read about the pelican. Remember the pelican and, and the elephant? That was even more fun. So if you want to get that book and you want to have a few laughs, you can uh, get that still on Amazon. Next, Todd. So the ancients were thought to be, it's interesting, the ancients were thought to be authoritative partly because they were dead, partly because they wrote hundreds and hundreds of years ago, in some cases thousands of years ago, and so they were, quote-unquote, closer to the date of creation, therefore they should know better than current people. This, this idea, many of us were brought up with this idea when we were growing up that if it's in a book, it's probably true. Did you have that feeling when you were young and reading a book? I mean, that, that, that's a dangerous idea, frankly, uh, although you can take that too far, too, so that young people don't believe anything. Uh, but the ancients were believed because they were ancient. And this is, it, took a hard, it took a lot to overthrow ancient authority, even when they were goofy. Okay. And some of the stuff Aristotle said, he was thought to be the genius of all time. Some of the stuff he said was complete looney tunes. In the way things were shot out of cannons or you know, things dropping. I mentioned that last week. Next talk. But then in the 1500s especially, People started to rebel, and it's been argued that Martin Luther began this in the very early 1500s, but people started to question ancient authorities. Nicholas Copernicus was a Polish cleric and mathematician, a brilliant, brilliant guy, and he, he <laughs> the Ptolemaic system, which talked about the earth being at the center, right, because you all know the earth doesn't move, right? <laughs> right except during earthquakes. The earth doesn't move. There are scriptures that talk about the earth not moving, right? The earth will not be shaken, will not, right? It's laid on its foundations and stuff. And so that stuff was taken literally. Jesus said the sun rises and sets on the good and evil. So obviously if the earth moves, Jesus would have said the earth rotates for everybody, but he didn't say that. He said the sun rises and sets. So therefore, obviously, it's not. That may sound silly to you, but that was an argument a guy named Martin Luther used. Even Martin Luther didn't believe that the earth moved because of scripture. What we now know as a what? Misinterpretation of scripture. Yes? I mean, there are still people who believe in the flat earth, but there are. You can join the flat earth society. It's true. You look at me like I'm crazy. 
So Copernicus had the idea, and he didn't come up with this on his own, because the ancient Greeks had, had, had thought about this, is that the sun is the center of the universe and that the planets orbit it in circles, they thought, because circles are perfect and everything in heaven has to be perfect, and would move in nice circular motions and at constant speeds, you would think. And that led to problems, too, as we shall see. So that, that was not believed by most people. Okay, and so his book was put on the Index of Prohibited Books by the Catholic Church. Uh, next slide, Todd. Those who were in biology might have heard of Vesalius. Um, he wrote the first human anatomy book based on human anatomy. Because <laughs> up until that time, and even past that time, it was illegal to dissect human beings because it's the temple of God. So you can understand that. There was a clandestine black market in digging up bodies and bringing them to, yes, they make money. That's, that's bad. But this, you can't see it, but he's actually, this is the cover of his book. And they've got this cadaver here, and they've got all these people watching him dissect it because that was like you know going to the movies. And so human anatomy was completely changed by this book because prior to that they had dissected monkeys. And then we're into, I'm serious. And they would, they would, well, see, the monkey is like a human. And yeah. And then next, Todd, we have this guy who you, we, we talked about last week a little bit, Martin Luther. Part of the reason you're in this church is because you might be Protestant. Uh, this reinterpretation of scripture and the idea that the ancient authorities might be wrong in there. Remember the, the glossaria that we saw around the edges of the scripture? And the ancient authorities had all these opinions about scripture we showed you last week. And so he began to question those authorities. Next slide, Todd. Now, in the late 14, in the middle uh, 1400s, the printing press started to take hold. You remember Gutenberg? He is dead now. But <laughs> the, the, the printing press was, to that time, the same as the Internet is to us, that all of a sudden you could mass produce books instead of what? How were all books made before the printing press? Just imagine that. Imagine I buy a book, it was handwritten. Imagine how expensive it was. So only the very wealthy had access to books. All of a sudden, now people of, of, of moderate incomes could have books. And it's really quite impressive. Next slide. This is actually a replica of his, his printing press. And there's the Gutenberg Bible at the Library of Congress. Next slide, Doug. And so he invented this metal movable type and I, this graph, which I know is hard to see from where you're seated, that's because you should be seated up here, but the blue bars are showing the number of books uh, printed in different centuries, 15, 16, 17, and 18. So in the 15th century, of course, that's when the printing press was invented. Not that many were, were published, but in the 16th century, over 200 million books were published, were printed by 200 million. That's a lot. In the 17th century, that was almost 600 million. And by the 18th century, almost a billion books had been printed. That's a lot. So you can see an exponential growth in the output of books. Now, this is just for fun. This is a, a printer's uh, bench. And so he would put his individual letters in the little rectangular cubby holes. Okay? And what kind of letters do you have? You have capital letters, and you have small case or lower case, right? Todd? This is where those names come from. Is it going, Todd, or not? 
Oh, so this is true. I'm not making this up. So that's just, this is where it comes from. See, now it was worth coming to church. <laughs> Why did they put the capital letters in the uppercase? Because you don't use them nearly as often as the lowercase. The lowercase was easier to access. Cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> I knew you'd like that. Okay, now, yeah, this is at uh, what, Cold Spring Village in Cape May. Well, it's close to Cape May. Next, what, there was a hand? Do you really? Oh, cool. That's so awesome. I'm coming to your house to steal it. It's awesome. Do you know where that comes from? That's a bar, right? Pines and Quartz. Yeah. That's a, I don't know where Cubby Hole comes from. But Martin Luther's 95 theses, the ones he tacked on the door when they were printed in 1522, 300,000 copies in two years were distributed. Think about that. There's no wonder that his, his heretical ideas were spread so very quickly uh, because of the printing process. You know, that if, if he had come out in the early 1400s before the printing press with these ideas, it probably would have just been squelched. You know, the, the, the printing press really did change history. Next slide, Todd. We, we introduced these two guys last week, Kepler and Galileo. Uh, Kepler was a mathematician, a very brilliant guy, but a horrendous lecturer. He offered a, he offered a course at the university, and then the next, the next semester, he had zero register for the course. <laughs> so he was a very nice guy. He was a very nice guy. Led a very difficult life, uh, but he was... He was so far you know, above everybody, he just couldn't bring it down to their level. And then Galileo, the Italian, uh, he was a Catholic, so he got into trouble. Because Kepler, Kepler was Protestant, so he was going to hell anyway, as you know, and, and <laughs> according to the church. And, and Galileo, though, was Catholic, so it led to serious problems. Next slide. So what Kepler did, the problem was that there were, there were seven bodies in the sky that moved relative to the fixed stars. So you know about constellations, yes? Okay. This is, by the way, why the U.S. flag has stars on a blue background. Remember the Betsy Ross flag with the 13 stars? That was called a, a new constellation in the, in the heavens to represent the United States. That was, yeah. Stick with me. I'll tell you all kinds of stuff that's worthless. <laughs> so these seven bodies, these seven bodies, that they moved, right? The sun moves and the moon moves. And then you've got what? Mercury and Venus and Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. They were called planets because that literally means a wandering star. And they, didn't, they moved differently from the fixed. And this has been known for millennia. And they moved strangely, very strangely. Sometimes they would slow down and stop, and then they'd go backwards in the sky, and then they'd go forwards again. That was called retrograde motion, and that was bad. You can't do that kind of stuff in heaven. You know, the heaven, heaven is supposed to be a perfect place with constant motions. And on earth, things always grind to a halt. Right? Things always come to a halt on earth except for two-year-olds. But in the heavens, heavens, things always are moving at all times. So the, the math they were trying to fit, it just circles didn't work. Even Copernicus tried to do everything with circles because of this prejudice from thousands of years of circles in the sky, circles in the sky. Kepler, being a mathematician, was as happy with other shapes as circles, so he tried ellipses because the orbit of Mars was a mess. When he tried the ellipse, guess what happened? 
It fit perfectly. Without, without any contortions, the orbit of Mars was indeed an ellipse. And so all of a sudden, these relatively simple math formulas to describe these, these uh, math figures could be used to describe the motions of the planets in a much more simple and a much more accurate way. So that's a very big deal. The idea that math can be applied to the creation in an accurate way, a reliable way. Next slide. So Kepler's first law said that all the planets go around the sun in ellipses, and the sun is at one of the foci of the ellipses. And there's a restaurant at the other one here. <laughs> no, there's nothing, there's nothing there. So they, and they go around like this. Next slide, please. So if, if you watch how the Earth goes around the sun, notice as it gets closer to the sun, see how it speeds up? See, the ancients had noticed that the planets didn't travel at constant speeds, and they, they did all kinds of contortions to try to figure that out. Kepler said, well, I don't understand it, but it's doing it in a, in a methodical way. And that was his second law, saying that the planets speed up when they get closer to the sun, and they slow down when they get further away from it. You know why that happens. Because the gravitational attraction of the sun is greater when it's closer, so that speeds it up. Okay, but he didn't, they didn't understand that at all in the early 60s. In fact, they, they thought that maybe magnetism uh, was what was causing it. And then Galileo, he did not invent the telescope. He borrowed the idea from Hans Lippershey, a Dutch lens maker whose kids had stumbled on the idea of putting lenses like this. They were playing. And they did this, and they looked out the window towards the weather vane across the street, and it, got, it was bigger. And that's the whole idea of the telescope. And so Galileo heard that idea, built his own telescope, sold them to merchants in Venice so they could see ships before they got closer to shore and make more money. But he pointed at the heavens, and he made drawings. These are actual drawings uh, of, of the planets by Galileo. And the interesting thing is they weren't points of light like the stars were. Even with a telescope, stars are never bigger than points of light because they're so far away. But the planets actually showed disks. So they were very different from the stars. Saturn had ears. I think you can see that. That's what he said. Saturn looks like it has ears. Later he saw... Uh, that it, had, it was actually rings around the planet, Jupiter and Mars. And Venus, distribu- it, it showed phases in a systematic way so that when it was crescent phase, it was bigger, and as it got towards full phase, it got smaller and smaller. And that happened, that always happened, it always happened in that way. And Galileo recognized exactly what that meant. Next slide. In the old geocentric model with the Earth at the center, so the Earth was stationary at the center, and then each planet had its own crystalline sphere, was called a deferent. And then on that, to mimic the back and forth motions, they put little circles on top of the deferents called epicycles. Mercury and Venus's epicycle was lined up with the Earth-Sun line here because they always noticed how Mercury and Venus would always stay close to the Sun. They had no explanation for that. But in the modeling, they had to do that. We know that's because they're smaller orbits than us, and that's why they stay close. But if that's the case... That tells us something about Venus. If Venus is in an epicycle like this in front of the sun, next slide, then that constrains what Venus would look like through a telescope so that the illuminated side of Venus, which of course is being illuminated by the sun, would always be away from us, meaning we'd always see Venus in a crescent phase. Does that make sense? And a guy named Copernicus came up with that idea in his De Revolutionibus. Even though they didn't have telescopes, he said, if we could just see, he says, Venus, if it's going around the sun, it's going to do this. So that 
When it's close to us, we see a crescent phase, but as it gets further away from us, it's going to get more and more full, and that's why it also gets what? Smaller. Exactly what Galileo observed. So when Galileo saw this, he had a copy of De Revolutionibus. He knew immediately what that meant. This, of all of Galileo's discoveries, is perhaps the most important, usually not taught in school, that this proves that Venus goes around the sun. There's no other explanation. Okay, so that's really super important. Next slide, please. This shows you that Galileo didn't know how to use a ruler. <laughs> what these are are nightly observations of Jupiter with these three little, what do you call, Medicean stars, which turned out, to, of course, to be moons going around Jupiter, which he recognized after studying them for a couple of weeks because they always stayed with Jupiter and would go around. And that, that blew away people because they thought one of the original Aristotelian ideas was the Earth can't move because the moon goes around the Earth. Nobody ever argued that, and that, of course, is true. But if the Earth is moving, then the moon's going to go, oh, no, where does the Earth go? And so they can't follow it. That was one of Aristotle's arguments, right? Just like he knew that the Earth can't be rotating fast because when birds get up in the air, they'd go like that. And that was one of his arguments. You laugh now. You wouldn't have laughed talking to Aristotle. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, okay. So this showed, what this showed was that, look, Jupiter's moving. There's no question Jupiter's moving. And its moons seem to have no problem staying up with it. And it's got four of them. Of course, now we know it has over 60. Next slide, Todd. Bring on the scene Isaac Newton. Go ahead, Todd. Here he is, when in his younger days, who actually looks like, go ahead, Todd. <laughs> Fabio does not look like this now, let me tell you. Age, age happens to everyone. So Isaac Newton is interesting. Next slide, Todd. By the time of Galileo's death, which was in 1642, most people were beginning to accept the heliocentric, sun-centered system. The evidence was just becoming overwhelming. And so this was a problem. The geocentric model had been in vogue for thousands of years. Philosophies were based on that. Great philosophies like the great chain of being. So everybody had everything all figured out. And then all of a sudden the earth is moving and the sun is the thing at the center. All that philosophy had to be chucked. So now you've got this earth wildly spinning through space. What's causing it? Why? How can God even keep track of us if we're moving? This is one of the arguments. And they had no physics to underpin it. How, why do we go around the sun? What is going on? We can't argue that we're not, but what's causing it? This upset people a great deal. And so Isaac Newton was born, and he's the one who's going to solve all this, basically by himself. Next slide, please. When he was in Cambridge getting his, working on his master's degree, they had the bubonic plague, much like they're going to have in Los Angeles soon. I don't know if you've heard about that. Yeah, because of the, because of the rat pr- problem? Yeah, it's, ser- it's actually serious. Yeah, it's really a serious problem. So they closed down Cambridge, and they sent him home to the farm. And while he was on the farm, he was, he was only 23. Uh, he was undisturbed, and so he invented something called physics. And to help him do that, in the meantime, he also invented something called calculus, which I'll show you why he invented calculus a little in a few minutes. And so... His theories, which he came up with entirely on his own, 
were to show that the universe was indeed both predictable and highly precise. That's a good thing, but it can also be a double-edged sword. Next slide, please. Edmund Halley. Now, you might imagine Newton being the genius. Newton was centuries ahead of, his, of most people. I mean, literally. If you've ever had introductory physics, okay, you remember introductory physics? Yes, some of you are making very bad faces. <laughs> most of you, the introductory physics that you're doing was based entirely on his, his work. Okay? Well, you should have had it with me. You would have loved it. Physics is fun. All kinds of stuff. You throw cats around the room and stuff. It's great. <coughs> He did have a couple friends. One was Edmund Halley, who was uh, a genius in his own right, did lots of different things, oceanography as well as astronomy. And so he was a friend because he wasn't threatened by Newton. He knew Newton was a genius, and so he just accepted it. And he was a good friend to, to Newton. He was, uh, Halley was in a bar, a tavern, with Hook and Christopher Wren. You've probably heard of him, the, uh, the architect. A couple other people. And they were arguing. they were arguing about inverse square laws and what kind of orbits would be caused by inverse square laws. If you go into English taverns today, you often hear this argument. <laughs> I'll show you what an inverse square law is in, in a minute. But this is, what they were, this is what they were discussing. So Halley says, well, you know, I'm going to go ask Newton because I bet he knows what kind of orbits an inverse square law would do. So he goes and talks to Newton. He says, if, if gravity is an inverse square law like you say that it is, what kind of orbits is the body going to have caused by that force of attraction? Okay, next slide. So this is what an inverse square law looks like. Don't panic, okay? <laughs> F is just force. MA is just mass times acceleration. This is Newton's second law. And then it's, he's setting the force equal to this funny-looking thing. G is just a constant to make the units come out right. M1 and M2 are two masses separated by a distance r, Okay. And they have a force of attraction for each other, which is given by this relationship. Take the mass of one, multiply it by the mass of the other, divide by the distance between them squared, and see it's in the denominator. That's why it's called an inverse square law. Okay? So in other words, as you, as you bring, make R bigger and bigger, the force gets less and less, and very quickly. Right? If your interest rate was a squared thing, you, you'd all be like multi-wealthy. So things happen very quickly. By the way, who's, who's tugging harder? Who's tugging harder? If, 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 let's say that this guy, let's say that this guy is 10 times more massive than that guy. Who's tugging harder? Higher mass. Who said neither? And the answer is neither. Just like in a tug of war. I don't know if you know that, but if you have two teams and they're tugging, there's one force in the rope, the tension of the rope. And it's the same on both teams. So who's going to win? Which, which team is going to be harder to move if they both experience the same force? The more massive team. So if you want to win a tug of war, get some really heavy people <laughs> who, who can hold on to the rope. You know. Next slide, Todd. So Newton, to the question of inverse square laws, didn't hesitate. He says, a conic section. And Halley is like, so what's a conic section? It's a section of a cone. Come on. Look, it's a cone. Look, it's a cone. Okay, so if you draw a line from the tippy point down to the center of the base, that's called the altitude of the cone. And how you slice this thing, you'll have different shaped conic sections. 
If you make a slice perpendicular to the altitude, whoop, you get a cycle. Pat, can you hold that for me? Don't steal it. Okay. If you if you go at a slight angle, and you you get a an ellipse. Oh, cool! It's so cool. If you slice it such that the angle of the slice is parallel to the slope of the cone, then you get that shape. And that's called a parabola. Don't worry, I only have 20 more pieces to give you. And if you slice it at a higher angle than that, it turns into a hyperbola. That's what we mean by conic sections. So in that simple little three-word answer, Newton was saying... An inverse square law will always cause a conic section, circle, ellipse, parabola, or hyperbola. It's really interesting. I could tell you lots of stories about that. You know how in the atom you've got electrons going around a proton? Yes? Or many protons, depending on what element you have? The law that governs those orbits is an inverse square law. Coulomb's law, which is how they all knew about inverse square laws because Coulomb had, had come up with this before the gravity stuff. So they were thinking maybe gravity is like the electrostatic force. They said, well, what's he bringing that up for? Only inverse square laws can have stable orbits. So if the gravitational law or the electrostatic laws, if they were not inverse square laws, nothing would work in the universe. Bet you didn't know that, did you? God did. <laughs> exactly right. So, I mean, God knows what he's doing, okay? Yeah, he knows what he's doing. So, Halley says, Newton, what in the world? You, how did you know it was going to be a conic section? And Newton says, I, I, I calculated it 20 years ago. But he didn't tell anybody because he was always running into... People didn't like him because he was so smart. So, that no matter what he did... He had opponents who, number one, couldn't understand what he was doing, and number two, were just very, very jealous because scientists are people, and people are a problem. <laughs> don't, let, don't let a scientist ever tell you they're objective. That is a, that's not true, and you know that's not true. So Halley says, okay, dude, you can't just make these tremendously earth-shattering discoveries and not tell you. You've got to tell people. So he actually financed the publishing of Principia. Next slide, Todd, which came out in 1686. And this book, probably the most important science book that nobody's ever read, is very difficult to read. I actually have a book that's this thick to help read the Principia. <laughs> it's very well done. You know, it's, it's seriously, because it was written before the invention of vectors. They used something you don't want to know. It's bad. Anyway. But this book explains so, so many physical properties that people didn't understand for thousands of years, like tides that I mentioned last, last week. He explained how the moon is the major cause of tides and why that was. Nobody had ever understood that. They knew the moon had something to do with tides, but it made no sense because the sun pulls on the earth much more strongly. And yet he showed that it was the proximity of the moon acting on the earth at different places with greatly different forces. That difference in gravity is what causes the tides. The sun does cross tides, but not nearly as much as the moon. So that was just one thing that he discovered. Next slide. He showed that the laws of nature are universal, that the same laws that govern how throwing a cat in the air and how it flies through the air, 
those same laws govern the planets. And so you say, well, how, 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 what else would it be? For thousands of years, there were laws that governed the earth, and then there were laws that governed the heavens. Right? And then and never the twain shall meet. And Newton said it's not true. It's just not that laws, the laws are indeed universal. Next slide, please. So I'm going to take one example. Okay, I don't want any gnashing of teeth. I'm just going to show you one mathematical example, which is really cool, to give you a flavor for why this book was so tremendously important and the complete change of ideas that this has over pelicans. Remember pelicans from last? Yes? Okay. So we're going to use, we're going to use some math. That'll be fun. Next slide, please. So what is the poop with this apple? Everybody knows this story. It actually is probably a true story uh, because Newton does mention an apple in some of his writings. He was, this happened most likely when he was back on the farm doing his, his physics. And he was trying to figure out, could the Earth's gravity be the force that's causing the moon to orbit it? And the idea of the apple is that he saw the apple fall from the tree, and the idea was, well, that's interesting. Why did the apple fall? The apple was like 30 feet in the air. Obviously, the Earth's gravity must what, extend up 30 feet in the air to the, to the, to the apple. Right? Otherwise, it wouldn't fall. You see where his next thought's going to go? Well, then how high up does the Earth's gravity extend? Could it extend all the way up to the... You see, see, that's what he's... Now, the difference between us and Newton is that he could figure out... He took that question and put some mathematics to it with a physics that he had invented that nobody else knew. So that's what we're going to do together. And there'll be a test afterwards. Next slide, please. Oh, this... How high up does the force go? Does it go to the moon, Alice? Next slide. See, do you... So in honor of the Apollo 11 moon flight, let me show you what they found. They found Alice Cramden on the moon. <laughs> and NASA didn't, they didn't tell you that. Next slide, please. So we're going to try to prove that the moon actually is in orbit because of the Earth's gravity. Okay? It'll be fun. Go ahead, Todd, go ahead. So we have to learn what centripetal acceleration is. Centripetal just means center-seeking. That's all it means, center Seeking. And you know what acceleration is, right? Any change in velocity, right? So if you go faster or go slower, that's an acceleration. If you change direction, that's an acceleration. So if you're in a car and you turn the wheel and everybody slides over, you're you're accelerating because you're changing direction. That's all. We just have to give names to these things. You know who came up with the word acceleration? Galileo. Yeah, how about that? So let me show you what I mean by this. I'm getting too old to do this. Look, it's a mass. And so, yes? And if I throw this thing, it goes in a straight line. That's Newton's first law. Things like to move in straight lines, unless acted upon by an external force. So if I do this, the people in the front row are starting to panic. <laughs> I don't just wait. <laughs> now, now what, what is, what's it doing now? It's going in a circle. Why? What's causing it to go in a circle? It must be a force in the string tugging at it in what direction? Towards the center of the circle. So that's called a centripetal force, which means a force acting towards the center. Isn't this hard? (laughs) Science is easy. You just have to learn the vocabulary. So 
this thing's going in a circle. It's being constrained to go in a circle because it's feeling a centripetal force. In this case, the tension and the strain. There is no such thing as centrifugal force. That does not exist. There is no force trying to yank this thing straight out. That does not exist. The only force here is the force of the string tugging it inwards. I'll prove that by spinning this thing and letting go of it when it's right in front of this nice lady right here. <laughs> if there was centrifugal force and I let go of it, what would happen? It would fly directly outwards and kill her, and then it would be suing time. So, but, but where's it going to go if I let go of it? This force, this force will be gone, and then it's just going to fly as this diagram shows you, tangent to the circle. Yes? Because there is no force yanking it outwards. Okay? So I'm going to see if I can. I, I, I hit three people this morning. <laughs> Do you see the people with the eye patches in church? <laughs> okay, here we go. Ready? Where's the applause? I don't get it. Anyway. Yay. Hey, yeah, come on. No such thing as centrifugal force. So listen, if you see something traveling in a circular orbit, or elliptical, parabolic, or hyperbolic, there has to be a centripetal force acting on it. Okay. Now, there isn't a string connecting the sun and the earth, so that's not doing it. So Newton hypothesized it must be. Okay, now let's see if we can prove that. So and this equation simply gives you the centripetal acceleration for a body in a circle. It's very simple. It's the speed, the velocity squared, divided by the size of the circular orb. That's it. That's all. Simple? Piece of cake. Next slide, please. So we're going to try to figure out what is the centripetal acceleration that the moon is experiencing. We can actually measure that. Stop. Where's <laughs> the goodness? See, see centripetal acceleration, yes? Right? Now look. I need to know how fast the moon is moving, and I know, need to know the size of its orbit. We can figure that out, because we know how far away the moon is. The ancients knew that. So we're talking, that's, we've been knowing that for over 2,000 years. How fast is it going? Well, if it's going in a circle, we'll assume a circle. That's the 2 pi r thing. How long does it take the moon to go around in a circle? A month. That's where we get the term month. Right? It's the time it takes the moon to go around. That's what, right? It's in our calendar. That's what a month is. Hello. <laughs> okay. So we know how long it takes to go around in a circle. So I can get the speed by taking the circumference of the circle and dividing by how long it takes to go around the circle. That gives me the speed. Okay. So that's what he's doing. He knows, he knows the size of the orbit. He plunks the numbers in. And now comes this meaningless number, 2.72 times 10 to the minus 3 meters per second per second. So that's the acceleration. So what is that? That is the acceleration of the moon as observed based on how fast it's going and how far away from the earth it is. Are you with me? This is on our, you can't argue this. This is very straightforward. We know how fast the moon's going. We know how far away it is. Okay. Now, this is what Newton has to answer. That's what it's doing. That's the observation. Can gravity provide that? Can my gravitational laws that I've come up with actually produce that acceleration. Can gravity be the string that does this? Next slide, Todd. So we've got to figure that out. We've got to figure out what the gravitational acceleration available is. He's a very tall person on the Earth. And there are some kind of problems here, because remember, his, his force law had to do with this mass and this mass and the attraction. Yes? 
Well, the Earth has lots of mass. Mass distributed over this huge 8,000-mile diameter ball. So what part of the mass do you use? What distance do you use? (sighs) Newton says, this is an intractable problem. And the math doesn't exist to figure this out. So I have to figure out the mass. How do I deal with an infinite number of little point particles that I call the Earth? It's called calculus. So he invented calculus to solve this one problem. And then found it had a few other uses, but that's another story. <laughs> so what he proved with his calculus is that you could take, if, if the body is uniformly distributed in mass, it acts as though all the mass is located at its center. And so the distance between the person and the Earth's mass can be taken as the radius of the Earth. So that's a nice simplification. Thank you, God. So let's calculate the acceleration of gravity on a person on the surface of the Earth. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. And so that comes out to be this funny-looking thing. So this, if you drop a person off a building, okay, this is acceleration they're going to experience. It's a constant, this funny uh, proportionality constant, which they didn't know what that was. The mass of the Earth, which they also did not know because it breaks all the scales. And then the size of the Earth, they did know. That had been known for for hundreds and hundreds of years. So we knew this because you can get this by throwing things off buildings. We don't know what these two things are, but we know the size of the Earth. Next slide, please. So now what he's going to do is calculate how much acceleration can gravity produce. So he uses the law of gravity, sets it equal to F equals ma, cancels out the the mass of the moon because it's not important. So the acceleration the moon would have, look, it's the same funny-looking two constants that we don't know the answer to, divided by the distance to the moon, which we do know. So I don't know this, and I, I do know this, and I don't know that. So see, I'm kind of stuck. I've got a lot of unknowns. So what's Newton going to do? Next slide. So he's going to make a ratio. He's going to take the acceleration the moon experiences due to gravity and divide it by the acceleration that a, a, a body would feel at the surface of the Earth. Now, do you remember this junk from algebra? I don't know what GME is, but look. It's in top and bottom. What does that mean? cancel out. It doesn't matter. So this reduces to the acceleration of gravity. I know this, the size of the Earth. I know this, the distance to the moon. I know it. I got it all. I can actually calculate directly the acceleration the moon would be experiencing due to gravity. Throws the numbers in. What's he come out with? Next slide. Look what he comes out with. Next slide. So the acceleration he observed was 2.72, and he's calculated 2.71, That's what gravity can provide. So the gravity can provide the second number. That's a theoretical number. The first number is observational. What do you notice about those two numbers? So what would you conclude? That gravity is the thing causing the acceleration. That's what he concluded. His his quote was that those those numbers answer pretty nearly, which is his humble way of saying, holy crap. (laughs) This is awesome. It's funny because the guys, when he presented this at the Royal Society, they poo-pooed it. You know why? It wasn't perfect. Yeah, 0.36%. It wasn't perfect. It's no wonder he didn't like these people. Is that where fake news came from? No, that's the town in Massachusetts where they made the cookie. (laughs) Next slide, please. Sorry? Did they poo-poo it because they didn't like him? They were jealous of him. They they poo-pooed it because they were jealous of him. 
He was centuries ahead of them. These were smart guys. He made them look like idiots. You know? I mean, if all he had ever done was invent calculus, he, would, he should be famous. And that was just a tiny thing that he invented. Okay. The next slide, please, because I just said that. Let's see how we're doing for time. What time do I have to stop? 11.35? Two o'clock, thank you. <laughs> Talk to my wife about that. It's interesting. Again, his book was very hard to read. You really had to be super smart to read this book and understand it. I mean, it's understandable. So he wrote another book, almost a pamphlet. It was much shorter. It was like 100 pages in 1728 called The System of the World to try to explain what orbits are because this is not a simple concept at all. Well, it is, but you have to understand. You laugh. Okay. Let me try to explain. So gravity, we just showed that gravity causes orbits. That's what all my college kids will say. I say, what causes the Earth to go around the sun? Gravity, man. Okay. And what does gravity always cause things to do? Always. Okay. So if the gravity of the Earth and the gravity of the thing, they were pulling on each other equally hard, this thing moved visibly because it's a little bit less massive than the Earth. But they both moved, and they both pulled on each other with the same force. Okay. So... My question to my students is simply, why doesn't the Earth fall into the sun? And that's when the fun happens. You get all kinds of cool answers. Well, it's the gravity of the other planets keeping it out, man. <laughs> or magnetism. It's magnetism. This is just funny because that's what the people in the 1600s said, magnetism. In other words, they have the faintest idea what an orbit is. They've been taught it's gravity, but that's it. They're done. Can anybody here explain to me what an orbit is? I actually had somebody in the first hour give me the exact right answer. Oh, he was younger. Yeah. So, hmm? No, that wasn't the pastor. No. So, Newton, see, this is Newton. Sorry? No. Because there's only one force, right? It's just gravity. I tell my students it's not the other planets pulling, because how do you explain Pluto? See what I mean? So the only force present is gravity, and that's pulling things together. Next slide, Todd. So in this pamphlet called The System of the World, he had this diagram, which I just don't have time to show you, but I actually have an animated version of this to explain orbits, but I'll try to explain it just by... Can you see the different trajectories coming off a cannon off this mountain? What he was showing is that if you can make the projectile go faster and faster, it goes in larger trajectories... If you can make it go fast enough, its rate of fall equals the fall of curvature of the Earth, and it falls around the Earth, better known as an orbit. All orbits are simply one body falling around another body. That it has enough, you could think of it as horizontal speed, so that its, its rate of descent is equal to or less than the rate of fall away of the ground beneath you because you're going around a, a sphere, so you don't get closer to the ball. So that's what an orbit is. If you give it even more energy, then you can get even more and more uh, elliptical orbits. And eventually, if you go fast enough, you can escape the gravity of the body. Cool, right? The proof of this is very simple. Remember the astronauts in the space shuttle? Remember we used to have a space shuttle? Remember we used to have a space program? Don't get me started. So remember what they were doing inside the space shuttle when they were in orbit? The astronauts were in a state of, not panic, but... Weightlessness. Remember the weightless. Remember weightlessness. Boy, I hate that word. 
Are they truly weightless? The force of gravity from the earth on them is only 8% less than it is on the ground. Oh, look at the looks. Yeah, that's because the commentators on the news, they don't know nothing. Why then are they floating around and feel like they're weightless? Because they are in free fall around the earth. They and the space shuttle. That's what an orbit is. Just like if you were in in an elevator and the cable snapped and it falls down with the acceleration of gravity, what would you be doing inside the elevator besides screaming? You'd be floating, right? You'd be floating. You would be weightless, right? Until you hit the bottom, then you'd be dead. But before that, you're flo- yes? Are you with me on this? When you're in free fall, you feel like you're weightless, even though you're really not, because the force of gravity is about to give you a root. Are you with me on this? Yeah, so that's what an orbit is. The Earth is literally falling around the sun. That as we fall towards the sun, the sun's surface curves away at roughly the same rate, and so we don't get closer to it, or much closer to it. Okay? That's what an orbit is. That's what you were supposed to have been told in high school, but frankly, most of your teachers didn't understand it either. You know? But it's interesting that the way that Newton explained it in the early 1700s is still an excellent way. I actually have a computer animation that shows you this. It's kind of fun. Next slide, but we don't have time. This book is just full of this stuff. This is just one. This is just one thing. Badly. Badly. Why? Why did it sell badly? I think there's only like 600 copies of it in existence. So if you have one, you can retire. <laughs> why? Why? Because people... When's the last time you went and bought a physics textbook to read? <laughs> and those are usually written well. Uh, but they're actually most of them based on the physics directly from this book. Principia is notoriously difficult to read, even today for physicists. I say, I have a book at home that I bought, which is written by a physicist to explain the book for physicists so that you can understand what Newton is saying. And then then it's kind of cool because you can see how it really reflects early physics textbooks for centuries were based on this. But no, it didn't sell well, but probably, as I say, the most important science book ever published that wasn't read. Yeah, we've come a long way from pelicans. But do you see the problem with this? This is showing you that you can use mathematical equations to show really cool stuff, what we would call today prove things, not just talk about pelicans and say, just trust me. Everybody could do these calculations with just a little bit of algebra. So it's really kind of neat. But let's see what happens if we take it too far. A universe that runs on its own, like a perfectly designed machine, Do you see what that's going to lead to? It's going to lead to a a universe that doesn't need God. Because God made the universe so perfect, and it runs by these laws we're discovering, that God can just sit back in the Bahamas reading a newspaper, and I don't have to to mess with the earth and the universe, because it runs so, because I made it so perfectly. Okay, next slide, Todd. And that's, that's deism. It's not a coincidence that deism came into vogue in the late 1600s. Gee, what a coincidence, right? And the idea is that God exists. God made the universe. He made it perfectly like this great machine. Doesn't need oiling, doesn't need tinkering, because God's perfect. He made a perfect universe. Right? He even called it good, very good. And it runs by itself. This led to this idea that God doesn't interfere and doesn't mess with his universe and all kinds of all the crazy heresies. Next slide, please. 
and you can see this during the Age of Enlightenment, 1715 to 1789, that's important for the United States, isn't it? The United States was doing a few things during the 18th century, wasn't it? If you've ever read the autobiography of a guy named Ben Franklin, you might remember that he toyed with the idea for a couple of years of deism, got into deism, believed in it, eventually tossed it because a God who has no dealings with his universe is essentially the same as no God at all, right? An impersonal force that doesn't exist. So that's really the same as atheism. Deism really is just atheism saying he made the universe, but now he's plays no role in it. Yes? Well, but don't you think that maybe we just haven't discovered all the other things that we're going to learn in the future yet? Just like David discovered the anatomy of David. Absolutely. So, I mean, like, we just don't understand most of the stuff. Yeah, but even if we do, hmm? even if we do, there's going to be stuff we don't understand. Yeah, we're not, we're not, trust me, yes. We know more than we used to know. <laughs> but if, if most people who are humble about it, the more you learn, the more what? You know, people who think they know it all, uh, that's, I just say to my students when they get a little uppity, go in the library and tell me how many of those books you've read. <laughs> yeah. And so deism, deism was popular for like a century or so, but it died out, I think, for obvious reasons. Next slide, please. God set up the, the universe like a machine, like a clock, and it ran on its own. Okay. This idea is, is uh, you can see this in English neoclassical literature. Those who, anybody who studied English, we're talking Gulliver's Travels, we're talking about um, some of the poetry of the latter part of the 1600s into the 1700s. It had a da dun da dun da dun da dun da dun like a machine. The machine was being turned into a god. This all came from this idea that the universe is like a machine and runs on its own. Next slide, please. Yeah, next slide, please. So this, this, this is where we get our theology today. And I, the reason I want to show you this is because deism is still alive today. We just don't know it. There's a lot of people who are deists and don't know it, who have this idea of there's a God out there, but he plays no role in the universe, and that is deism. So in this particular episode of The Simpsons, next slide, please, Bart was asked to pray. And this is his prayer. Dear God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. You're not laughing because I bet some of you have had this very same thought sometimes. No? Never? Afraid to admit it. But this, do you see what, this is the definition of deism. What's it? Dear God. He's acknowledging the existence of God, even a personal relationship with dear God. But then what does he say? Everything we have, what? We did it. We did it. Everything we did, we got, we did. So thanks for nothing. As opposed to, who gives you the ability to live and breathe and think? Yeah, exactly. See? God the sustainer. Next slide. So let's take a look at some scriptures. Deism, as I say, died out. Let's look at some scriptures to see that deism is indeed heresy. Next slide, please. And I said that, right? God absent from the universe is basically atheism. So the scriptures make it clear that God plays an active role in the universe. Next slide, please. John 5, 17, this is Jesus. Jesus was always getting in trouble by doing stuff on the Sabbath. I almost think he enjoyed it, you know? 
And they were yelling at him because he was healing. It's just really cool. And think about he's doing miracles in front of their eyes. So instead of saying, oh, this is awesome, it's like, you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath, man. <laughs> right? If I did some kind of great miracle in this room, the last thing that would happen to come into your mind is, don't do it, no work on Sunday, man. Yeah. <laughs> right? You'd be praising God. But this just showed you where their hearts were. So this is the response in one of those cases. Jesus said to them, my father is working. Until now, and I myself am working. Better known as God's always at work. Always at work, as Jesus is. Next slide. I didn't say we should work on Sunday, right? We should set Sunday apart and to do worshiping God and taking rest and so on. The Sabbath was made for. Yeah, so enjoy it and, and treat it as holy. God always does everything for our benefits. You know this story in Acts. Paul then stood up in the meeting in the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Areopagus, by the way, that, that's translated Mars Hill. You see Aries in there. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of, your objects of, of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Next slide. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, our existence. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Yes, in other words, God is continually sustaining us. Next slide. Paul speaking to the people at Colossae. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Present tense. Got it? The man who was God, who hung on that cross, could have made the universe disappear with a thought. He did not have to suffer there on that cross. That was a choice. He was not powerless. He was doing the Father's will. That's even more powerful when you think about it. It's not that he couldn't have called down a billion angels to wipe the earth out, to wipe the universe out and start over. He hung there and died for us. Think about that. He had the power to just say, that's it, that's enough. Yeah, exactly right. Next slide, please. And the writer to the Hebrews said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, so a couple of con conclusions. If you remember anything from this talk, remember this. When people talk about God as creator, I wish they would also add sustainer. When you talk about God as a creator and leave out sustainer, you're, you're tempting Theistic thought. And so 
I know in my own church, interestingly enough, my pastor always says creator and sustainer now. Because it's important that you know that God is active and working right now. Always. Everything that happens is God at work. Everything. Next slide, please. Yeah, God is at work. And it's interesting, God is at work in science. Hmm? This is the other thing. Scientists don't get it. You know, people, people, we can misinterpret scripture, but scientists don't understand nature. They think that discovering these laws means there is no God. In reality, it's, it's really the other way around, that, that these laws are simply our discovery of this is God at work, reliable, orderly, predictable, you know, in some ways, right? He's, he's enforcing these laws at all times, in all places, and if there's an infinite number of universes in all of those, he can handle it. It's not an issue. Okay? You take God out of the equation. Remember in the 60s, the Nietzsche thing, is God dead? Remember that nonsense? Remember the Time magazine cover? You take God, if God ceases to exist, guess what else ceases to exist? Existence itself. Not just stars and planets, but space and time. Everything's gone. All of it being upheld by the word of his power, always, at all times and all places. Next slide, please. So we don't want to be deists. We want to be theists in thought that God is working all the time. Next slide. Next. He's active. Probably we as his children are the only parts of the universe that can disobey him willfully. Yeah, it's a problem. Planets don't have a choice. They have to obey the laws. We, we disobey his laws with consequence. Okay. Next slide, please. Okay. And keep this in the back of your mind, too. No matter what science reveals, it's simply revealing God in action. Look, if evolution is true, and I'm not saying it is or isn't, if evolution is found to be true, so what? Can God not do his creation through evolution? Who are you to tell him otherwise? Why doesn't it say that in the Bible? That binary stars aren't mentioned in the Bible either. That doesn't mean they don't exist. Come on. Who do you write Genesis for? 21st century scientists? Or people 4,000 years ago herding sheep, trying to explain that the universe was made by God for his pleasure and for our pleasure, and we're supposed to take care of it. And it's good, very good. How did he do it? If he explained it today, we still wouldn't understand it. <laughs> Next slide, please. If you don't think God can handle controlling every atom and every star in the universe, your God's not big enough. We, we don't do very well at parallel processing as humans. I think that's why God invented something called time. Time does not constrain God in the least. Past, present, and future, he just is, hence his name. That's just not an issue for him. And he loves us more than the entire universe, just you. Not just us collectively, but just you. Next slide, Todd. Jesus is the proof of that. The death of the creator and sustainer on the cross is proof that he loves you more than you could ever love yourself or love anyone else. For him to hang on that cross for our sins, nothing he did, when he had the power to just say, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm going to start over, like in Noah times. But he promised he'd never do that again. 
That's a loving God. And that's the gospel. It really is good news. The best news of all. So let's pray together and we'll close. Jesus, we thank you for being the loving and graceful God that you are. That you love us more than we could possibly love ourselves. You always do everything for our betterment. That you're not doing it for you, you're doing it for us. And that the price you paid, that infinite price, that's how bad our sin is. And I thank you that you've made this universe, you uphold it, and that it's heading towards a wonderful end. And we can all be with you who believe in you. And I pray that you'd go with these good folks, help them to keep their faith in you, help them to, to exude grace and love to everyone that they meet, and to be patient with scientists who are struggling to find the truth. For they can't find it, they don't know it until they know you. For you are the very truth and the answer to all questions. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much.